0: And now, today's podcast episode.
1: Welcome to the second episode of the Almost Awakened podcast. We are your hosts.
0: I'm
2: your co-host, Bill.
1: And I'm Mikkel. The intro music you just heard was Live in the Moment by Portugal and the Man. Where can they find us, Bill?
2: They can find us at almostawakened.org. That's almostawakened.org. On the page, by the way, Mikkel, there's some resources for people who are just trying to kind of enter understanding development. There's a bookstore there with the books that you and I and other developed friends of ours have read. Uh, And so there's lots of kind of resources, tools, different thoughts, and uh, just things to help us wake up, or at least to almost wake up.
1: I love it. So today we're going to be talking about sapiens and um, some of the thoughts that have come to us as we've listened to this audio book. Bill, why don't you go ahead and get started?
2: Well, first, I, I wanted to tell you that um, unfortunately, we had to put our dog down last week.
1: Are you serious?
2: Well, he wasn't sick or anything. We just we just got busy, Bill. <laughs> so, so listener, there's a little humor to start us off. The book uh, *Sapiens* is something that our entire group of friends, I think, have read. And it's anytime I'm, I run into somebody who's awakened, it's a book that they're they're pointing to. Uh, Sapiens. Let me go through maybe a few ideas, and Mikkel, jump in anytime you kind of think of of something along these lines. But um,
1: what is Sapiens about, Bill?
2: Well, that's good. Let's let's start there. <laughs> so, uh, Sapiens is a book written by the author Yuval Harari. Uh, it's a book we highly recommend to anybody who wants to understand how we humans came to be, and that's that's the storyline. He starts at the very beginning. And says like, what what happened in the evolutionary process to bring humans into being? Us like, why do we do the things we do? Why do we build our societies the way we do? Why do we create myths and religions? Why do we have rituals? Why do we uh, why do we gossip and why do we uh, lack of vulnerability and authenticity in other settings? It, it really is just an explanation of how we humans came to be the way we are.
1: It's so interesting to me because you suggested this book to Kelsey and I, I don't know, probably a year ago. And this was my first real exposure to evolution because as a child growing up in Utah, um, I never, or or let me say this, the things that I heard about evolution were very brief and minimal and explained away uh, so that I I didn't believe in evolution if that makes sense. And so listening to Sapiens for me for the first time was mind-blowing because here was all of the science laid out and I was in a space where I could actually hear it and see it.
2: Yeah, and the book was groundbreaking for me as well. It was I think it was probably my first dive into the real the real social science behind evolution and specifically to human beings. And I I found it interesting as, as time has gone on, I've read a lot up on different members of the great apes family, gorillas and chimpanzees, orangutans, bonobos, and trying to understand their behavior as a piece of us from long ago, where us and them had kind of split from something and, and to recognize like what behaviors within them give us a hint at what we used to be. And it, it has been absolutely fascinating.
1: Yeah. Kelty and I also watched this show on Netflix called The Evolution of Us. And it's it's sort of like Sapiens. I know you didn't enjoy it as much as we did, but I thought it was really interesting to see some of the the visual and um, some of their explanations as well. We, we spent... A night up in Pine Valley with um, a group of friends, and we were talking about how some of the mechanisms of our our ancestors, you know, where we came from, still play a role in how we behave today. And it's just really interesting to me.
2: Yeah. So let's dive into some of that. So the first thought I had, as uh, I've thought about that book and I've tried to process the information there, and then kind of gone off and read other things, I I, I really deeply believe, Mikkel, that if we were to go back in time to when we as whatever species we were, when we first started to exhibit something other than just being animal, just being, you know, just being, uh, non-human. And when we first entered this, there's this little trace of humanity inside of us, imagination and creativity and all those things. I got to imagine we were in super small groups, small families, and, And I have to believe because it's been my experience as I've tried to become more authentic and vulnerable in my own life, that intimate connection between individuals of the group and the family, and I'm not talking sex, like people often hear intimacy and they're thinking, all right, there's kissing and hugging and whatever else. it's, It's more than that. It's the relationship. It's being vulnerable with somebody and authentic with somebody that they get to see you for who you really are. And they accept it and it's and, and you're accepting it back from them. And I, I have to believe that small groups worked in this way um, and that we had not yet developed these mechanisms you mentioned a moment ago to avoid vulnerability, to avoid being uh, transparent, to avoid being authentic. But I got to imagine at some point, just the evolutionary process always benefits the stronger uh the species that has the more, has more capability to survive. And so there obviously is strength in numbers. And so as human groups got larger, the larger groups would be able to protect their territory better. They would be able to defeat smaller groups better. But the trouble with larger groups is that there is a lack of trust. If you don't know the people around you, then you're not going to trust them and, and hence, you're not going to work together cohesively, and so then that comes with its own issues. And so groups that were able to work together in large numbers cohesively are the groups that were going to perpetuate and survive. And as a tribe grew larger, uh, and this intimate awareness of each other begins to kind of not be a binding mechanism, it's no longer working, and... That de- As that decreases, there was something else needed to make people cohesive. And all of a sudden, human beings invent this thing called gossip. And uh, and I'll put plenty of articles at the end of this episode. We'll, we'll have resources there where you can read up on how social scientists speak about gossip as a binding mechanism for a larger group where intimacy is now spread too thin to work with the size of, of that tribe.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Even the, the concept of gossip being a tool to keep groups together and and help groups stay connected is interesting to me because, again, growing up where I did in the religious system that I did, gossip was always referred to as a negative thing. And, and I think that there's two sides. There's gossip to harm people, but there's gossip to help The group stay connected, Um, and I I have found just within watching our own small group that there are times when I don't get to interact with everyone, um, and let's say you get to interact with them before I do. I find that I often will ask, well, hey, how is so and so doing, and what's kind of going on in their life, and so I think that it's important that we remember there's good gossip and there's negative gossip.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and both. Both gossips do serve the purpose of binding. Evolution doesn't give two shits about the trauma that we humans carry around, right? Evolution doesn't care about uh, how unhealthy we are emotionally or mentally so long as we are strong enough to keep perpetuating our species.
1: Yeah, it's interesting too. Kelsey and I were also watching Brene Brown and she she made a comment that, was so, I don't know, it just really kind of hit home. And she said that it's easier for us to cause pain than for us to feel pain. And I think that that relates to gossip because it can be easier to try and harm someone who we're not getting along with in the group by using gossip to cause a rift, you know, to, to change the dynamics.
2: Yeah. And, and when we think of gossip, I mean, gossip serves so many purposes. It it allows us to feel out what our role is in the tribe, right? Like, Like you could say like, hey, Jerry over there is really awesome at hunting woolly mammoths. And Fred over there trips over rocks all the time. <laughs> And so by telling stories, which is what gossip is, gossip is telling a story right. about the members of your tribe. As we tell stories about the members of our tribe, they can now fill in their roles. The the folks who are the best at hunting, the folks that are best at gathering, the folks that are most nurturing to the children, the folks who are best at standing up for maybe um, the tribe against others, but who are... Uh, unhealthy in the way that they treat the members of their own tribe. Like we could assign roles by telling stories about each other and gossip does that trick. It's interesting as I've done a reading on the great eight family other. So in my reading about the great, great eight family, and it should be said that we are members of the great eight family. People don't understand this, but we are closer in DNA to gorillas and chimpanzees then some dog species are to other dog species. And yet every dog species can mate and uh, reproduce uh, baby dogs. But for whatever reason, humans and chimps, humans and, and gorillas, the, the DNA, while being closer than dogs, doesn't allow for that. And thank goodness, because there are some crazy people out there. Um, who would who I, try that. Right. Who would try that. Right. And as I read about uh, the great ape family, I thought like, what's their binding mechanism? So I actually like tried to find out like what's their binding mechanism and it's grooming. And
1: so, monkeys, so what you're seeing is I'm, I'm really close to th- the great apes because I like to do that, Bill.
2: Because you sit next to me and pull lice out of my hair and eat it.
1: Well, I don't pull lice out of your hair, but I I, <laughs> I, I rub your hair. You do. I do. That's funny because this last, this last, you know, for the 4th of July, we were up uh, in Pine Valley and Ryan, um, he was like, why do you always do that? And you have such a good way of doing it.
2: You've, you've perfected it. So for the listener, again, our group is uh, vulnerable with each other. We sit next to each other. We hold each other's hands. We'll put our arm around each other. We, We tell each other how life is really going and we try not to hold things back. And one of the things that Mikkel is fantastic at is giving people human touch, and so she'll yeah she'll run her fingers through our, my hair and uh, hold my hand and put her arm around me, um, and and it's amazing too because since you're a lesbian there's not a threat there my my wife and and other people in our group they don't feel threatened by that, um, and it, I think it makes for a more cohesive group, and as I as I watch. As I read and watched how this monkey behavior plays out, I watched some YouTube videos and and uh, did some reading. Grooming is serving the exact same purpose. It allowed there to be a level of intimacy from one member of the great ape family with another. But there's a problem with grooming. There's actually two problems. One is that it takes way longer to groom than it does to gossip, right? Like I can yeah. be like, you know, like Fred's, Fred's an asshole. And uh, that only takes five seconds, or I can say like, hey, Jenny is like the coolest person in the world. But for me to like pick the lice out of somebody's hair and, you know, make sure that they're, they don't have any hair in knots and stuff, that's going to take a little bit.
1: That does take a long time. So Bill, I have a question. Do, it's interesting to me in thinking about this, do apes of, like, do gorillas and chimpanzees groom each other? Or do those types of you know, gorillas stay together, chimpanzees stay together, bonobos stay together. There's no interconnectedness between different groups, right? It's just
2: right. They they all stay with their species, and more than that, they form their own tribes. Interesting. Uh, so they'll be so. There's. The tribe size can be upwards of around 150, but generally they'll break out into smaller groups of 15, 16, 17, and they'll go kind of like find their own private space. And then they'll just all like lay around or sit around each other and groom each other. And they'll spend whatever, 45 minutes or an hour, just kind of like giving each other this, this touch and connection. And this holds the tribe together. The other problem with grooming, Mikkel, is that you can't do something else while you're grooming. In other words, you can't accomplish other tasks. And so it strikes me that once, whatever species it was, once it developed the ability to gossip, it, it vocal cords developed, it developed language, and it could now tell stories about the members of its tribe, gossip was a much faster, quicker way to, com- to give that same cohesiveness and you could do other things while you talked about people. Um, it's interesting as we think about gossip as an invention, we sometimes think of inventions like I go into a lab and I want to I create a light bulb and I don't know how to do that and so I'm testing things and doing stuff. Inve- uh, gossip as an invention was unintentional, but once it came into place, it absolutely served its purpose. And so now, whereas intimacy... Uh, only holds a group together. They think somewhere between like 15 to 25. And I'm, I'm wondering your thoughts, Mikhail, on as we've formed our group and as we look at other people who are forming groups and we see those groups in place, what your thoughts are on the size of the group and how intimacy works and doesn't work based on that size?
1: Yeah, as it kind of two things come to mind, Bill. Um, first, in finding a group, um, for me, you know, when, when I was going through some struggles and, and had no one, um, I reached out to someone I could trust who then connected me with you and with some of the other people in our group. And so knowing, I think who you can trust is key. Um, because that allowed me to be willing to be vulnerable because this other person trusted you and, so I think that there has to be a certain level of trust in forming the group. You you you've got to find people that you honor who are in a similar space as you, um, because it can be very difficult to to try and find um, a place where you feel safe. And I think safety again is another key factor. Um, and I think that as you as you interact with people you're you need to listen to your gut you're going to know when it's okay to say things and when it's okay to keep being open and vulnerable and and when when you need to hold back a little bit because you, you don't want to just lay your whole life out all at once does that make sense it, it's you have to build and i think that that's the same with your level of intimacy within the group that has to build you don't just find a group and then all of a sudden everybody's rubbing each other's hair and holding hands. It's, it builds slowly over time. And I've noticed as our group has gotten bigger, for me, it feels less connected the bigger we get. And I like the, I like it when it's smaller, um, our core kind of 15, because beyond that, I feel disconnected. It's hard for me to spend quality time with each individual person, because I do, I want to connect with them. I want to find out what's going on in their life. I want to give them that opportunity for us to both be vulnerable and share and, and grow. And I find that the larger our group gets, the harder it is to maintain that.
2: Yeah. And as we do episodes going forward, as we record other stuff, as we have other conversations with you, the listener, we're going to encourage you to try and build that kind of community where there is this vulnerability and authenticity, where there is this level of intimacy because you're willing to uh, expose your inside parts and talk about your shadows. But in doing that, not everybody is safe. It's, it's right. It's not only that you don't, it's not only that you're weary of sharing your yourself. It's also that other people's motives sometimes aren't genuine and people aren't safe to do that with.
1: Absolutely. And I think, like I said, me finding somebody I could trust, who then pointed me to you and Chris and Dawn, um, who, you know, then you guys helped bring in some other people into our, our circle. Um, trust is key.
2: Yeah. And I think we got lucky early on in that as we built the group to 4, six, eight, 10, 12, it seemed like the couples that we added, the people that we added, they were, they were the right fit immediately. And so it allowed us to go like, Oh, this thing works. Like this works. If you can find people whose motives are genuine, who are willing to lean into um, their shadows, who are willing to, and again, we're going to use these same words over and over again, but to be authentic, to be vulnerable. When you, when you sense like, Oh, now we're 12 people. Now we're 14 people and these are good human beings and they are all safe for me to be as much of myself as I can be. It it makes it easy to go like, oh, this process works.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So as uh, intimate connection between individuals works for about 15 to 25, when you get to those higher numbers, it breaks down as Mikkel already noted. We all say like hey man wouldn't it be cool for there to be 200 of us? No. No. It doesn't it doesn't work. It falls on its face. So as you get to those higher numbers and honestly I'm with you Mikkel, as we are at 14 15, you know, maybe we add another person or two, but it feels like we're at the upper limits of what that can be at its at its real best. And that doesn't mean you don't have other friends. That are like one layer away and you still love them and you spend time on them and you still get to know them. But it's just a fact you cannot have a group of 40 that intimately are connected. And so when you get to the higher numbers, something else has to come in. And we said it's gossip. Gossip works from about 25 and it works with less because, right, there's gossip in our group. Sure. Every group has that going on. You hope, as you pointed out, Mikkel, it's a healthy gossip. We're talking about like, hey, so-and-so's having a hard day. We should reach out to them and, and try to help them and, and give them some support. But negative gossip also happens. That's just natural. But if you get to those higher numbers, gossip also stops breaking down. Gossip works to about 150. And so Sapiens points out that this is the point, that once we got into tribes and groups of 150 and larger for those groups to self-perpetuate, and again, the bigger groups are always going to beat and defeat and destroy and kill the smaller groups, and they're always going to be able to do a better job of protecting their territory, suddenly this really magical thing comes in and it's called myth.
1: This is fascinating to me, the, the how it changes from gossip to myth. And it's fascinating to me that one person can tell a story and other people believe it.
2: Yeah, people, somebody creates a story that has...
1: Like some component of truth, but it's it's an invention. Like you said, they've created this thing that's part real and mostly not.
2: Right. Truth wrapped up in embellishment, truth wrapped up in fiction, truth wrapped up in heroes who the story tells them doing way more than they actually did. The The stories, the myth stories... Are powerful. They tell us stories about who we, us, our tribe, who they are. It tells us stories about who our enemies are. It tells us stories about what it means to be loyal to our tribe. It tells us stories about what it means to be disloyal and to distance ourselves from our tribe. It tells us how to achieve redemption when we've screwed up. It tells us how to care for others in our tribe so that we continue to reinforce that we fit in and we belong. Uh, it gives us the rules and boundaries of of how this tribe operates. And it's interesting, too, that I think when gossip is invented, and then even to a greater degree as we operate in large tribes operating around myth, I, this, this is when I think shadow comes in and ego comes in. In other words, there was right. no need, Mikkel, to protect ourselves from embarrassment. There was no need to protect ourselves from being mocked. There was no need to protect ourselves from having our most sensitive pieces of our life exposed until somebody had the ability to talk about us and to talk about our tribe and to tell stories about us in our tribe.
1: Yeah, that's interesting because in those smaller groups, everybody can see all of you know, they see all of the pieces of you. There is no reason to hide, but as the group gets bigger and expands, you don't know who you can trust. And you, you, I think you do, like you said, people start saying things, um, creating this us versus them mentality. And then it becomes important in some ways to not be who we are.
2: Yeah, I bet if we could watch over the last 5,000 years we would have seen so many myth stories come and go. And people go like, what do you mean by myth? Myth is not only religion. Myth is not only Hercules and Zeus. Myth is America, right? Like on right. like one person on one side of a line is an American, and the person three inches away on the other side of the line is a Mexican. And they might live on the same street, and they might they might know each other, and they might talk, and they might go to picnics together, but they're not the same. And it's this boundary that's not real. Money is another thing. It's a myth. It's just a piece of paper with ink and numbers on it.
1: And time?
2: Yeah, time is a myth. It's It's an arbitrary construct that we create in order to identify and label our world.
1: It's crazy to me. It's crazy. And yet so much of our life operates around these arbitrary constructs. Because what would life look like if we didn't? Do you think that there? Do you think that there'd be chaos if we didn't have these?
2: Absolutely. Even so, to go one step further with the chimpanzees, um, there is a so Jane Goodall was the lady. If you remember being a kid in school and you're watching these videos on like how gorillas and chimpanzees operate, there was always this lady named Jane Goodall, and Jane Goodall would um, observe, and she was actually like adopted into these tribes of gorillas and chimps. And she could safely like move around within this tribe, but she observed the chimps and they were, they were called the chimps of Gombe. The the chimps had this tribe and they would go out and patrol their territory at night. Like there was something about this tribe that says we are this group and anybody else is them. We're us, they're them. And they would go out and patrol the borders and they would end up killing uh, other members of other tribes trying to expand their territory and so war, we give war mythological stories. We say we are Americans and we're fighting against Isis or we're the north and we're fighting against the south. And it's just a myth that we've encapsulated that in, but somewhere deep inside our bones, sadly, is this is this desire to hurt and kill people who do not look like us.
1: I know, it's sometimes infuriating because we we're all so interconnected there's, you know, we can't function without each other, not just human beings, but, you know, plants and animals and, and insects and everything in this, this earth is so interconnected. And so to have these arbitrary and, and dividing factors is mind blowing. And, and sometimes it makes me feel so angry because why can't we just see all, why can't we just appreciate who we are and understand that the differences that we have don't, mean it's not a bad thing. Why can't we why can't we see our differences as a good thing and use those to both of our advantage? You know, like I'm I'm good at some things, but there's things that I'm not that great at and someone else is. And so in in combining those two, you know, taking what I'm good at and taking what someone else is good at can make you know, we could produce something that is useful and beneficial to everybody. So it just sometimes feels so maddening and infuriating that we do, we we allow ourselves in a lot of ways to live by the constructs and the labels that other people have placed.
2: Yeah, and you could, and I I think I'm safe saying this because I doubt there's a lot of a almost awakened or awakened people who are Trump supporters, right? That doesn't make sense.
1: It does not make sense.
2: Okay, so but we'll try
1: not to judge you.
2: Okay, we won't. So if you like Trump, you can certainly email us and share your thoughts with us. But it feels as though the way Trump is capitalized is by pitting us against them, making everything very, um, very ethnocentric. But it feels, too, at the same time that there are segments of our society who are pushing ethnocentricity forward, saying, like, no, we have to protect us, and we have to go after them, um, especially when we talk about, like, the, the uh, uh, folks who are being held uh, captive who live across the border and have tried to make their way into this country to make a better life. And all of that comes with legality and uh, certainly complications in terms of like what's right and what's wrong. But this recognition of like putting these people in cages and the way that these folks are being treated, it's a very ethnocentric way of handling other human beings. And while Trump and his supporters and that segment of society who is pushing for those things seems to be fighting to hang on to ethnocentricity, it feels like our world is moving into something else that begins to really deeply respect diversity, begins to really respect difference and to see the value that those gifts add to our culture and to our society.
1: Yeah, I agree. I just wish it would move along faster.
2: Yeah. What can we do to speed it up? And I think maybe part of that is to build intimate communities where you begin to really value people's differences rather than setting up a system where people are compelled to fit in and to change themselves, but to form groups where people can be themselves and you can start to sense the gifts that are there.
1: Yeah. And I think, Bill, it comes down to having an open mind. So how do you do that? How do you cultivate an, an open mind, being accepting of other people's differences and have that level of connection and intimacy?
2: Yeah, I'm sure. In over the course of time, we're going to get into lots of those things. So I was just at a get together on Thursday. It was a party. It was good human beings. Uh, this group happened to have younger children. And I, I sensed, by the way, I'll note this, that the way you build your community, one of the top, and maybe we'll just do an episode on this at some point, like what are the 10 things you have to consider as you build a community? The age of your children does play a significant role. Um, in the kind of tribe and community that you you build, this this particular group had very young children. Um, and as we sat around and uh, and we talked, they were making note of what tools were most helpful to waking up. Um, and it really it really uh, impresses me when people begin to be aware of like, oh, I'm awakened and this is what happened that helped me edge into that. I'm almost awakened, and here are the things that I'm implementing in my life that are a factor in that occurring. Uh, it'll be interesting, I think, as we go forward to talk about what it takes to not only wake up yourself, but to to build communities of folks who are almost awakened.
1: And I think that one of the things that you said kind of stuck out for me is they're they're learning these skills, you know, these techniques, these these methods, whatever, and hopefully sharing those with their kids so that we can, moving forward, have a more open and accepting and loving future generation.
2: And it seems like that's the case. It feels like when you talk to a 15-year-old today, if you were to survey 115-year-olds, they are much more inclusive of diversity. LGBT being one issue specifically that uh, surveys have been done and note that our younger generation is not drawing the lines that past generations did. And so I I see a lot of hope. Uh, There's a lot of other things that maybe are causing destruction on this planet. But one of the things I see hope for is that our younger generation seems to be picking up uh, inclusivity and understanding and valuing of diversity.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. So how does this relate to sapiens, Bill? Do you think maybe it ties into, into myth?
2: So two things happen for me. One is, as you point out, myth. Once I understood how myth came into being and what purpose myth served, it allowed me to go back into my own system and to see that my system's myth was just myth too. It wasn't any more real. I didn't didn't deserve to have any more certainty about my uh, spiritual myth story. than than the judgment I took out on other people's myth stories. In other words, as I looked around the world and I said like, oh, look at those religions, they're not true. I mean, let's take, for instance, uh, uh, Hinduism with the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is a very fictional writing. There's talking deers, there's magical spells. And as I looked at the Bhagavad Gita and I said like, oh, that's obviously fiction, like maybe it's useful. It probably contains truth. And now that I've read it, I certainly does but it's just fictional myth and it serves a purpose of of giving that tribe its boundaries, its truth to work within. And then all of a sudden I had to turn around and look at my own myth stories and go like, oh, that's the same thing. So that was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened was as I looked at my own shadows, and this is much more recent, as I look at my own shadows and mechanisms, I I now recognize that whoever we were 200,000 years ago, we likely didn't have those mechanisms then. And as we began to build bigger and bigger groups and tribes, those mechanisms came into being. be. And now I see like, oh, I want to be safe. I want my tribe to be big enough. And I want myth stories to exist. America again, for instance, that, that we bind together to protect ourselves against others who see us as an enemy. I certainly want that. But the moment I feel safe, I also want to go back now and go back to my smaller tribe, my smaller group. And I want to start to shed those mechanisms because I'm healthier if I can look at my shadows honestly and begin to kind of work on them, get rid of the ones that don't need to be there and examine and dissect and reconstruct the ones that need to be something different than what they are.
1: I think that there's a lot of times we tell, our, we tell ourselves myths, Bill, for example, um, a couple of weeks ago. Kelsey went and got her her ear pierced, like the upper part of her ear, right? And we had talked about both of us doing it at the same time, but she was with Amanda, and they both got super excited, and so they decided to do it right then and there, and I was still at work. And so automatically I start creating stories, myths, if you will, in my own head about what that means. and And it's just interesting as we, at least for me, as I step back and start looking at what my shadows are, how often I go to story um, when things aren't making sense. Do you find that you do that yourself?
2: So absolutely, I do that. And and this was a piece of shadow that was on my mind a few weeks ago, now that we're kind of jumping into some shadow work here. I'm laying in bed with my wife, and she's been hurt by something I've done. And that thing that I've done was to tell her that she would be best served if she read more books because our group, they are all reading these certain books and it gives us something to talk about and it gives us something to grow in and it gives us something to learn by. And suddenly, I, like, I see how hurt she is. as I'm As I'm getting her, the whole point, right, is that my shadow is to try and make her more like me. I want her to be me. And in trying to make her be me, I am manipulating her into fitting into what I want her to be, and I'm using the group as an example and saying, like, the group all does this and you don't. What's really going on, though, is that the group is diversified. If you take our core group, Mikkel, there are some people in our group who are reading, and there are other members of our group who are not reading. There are members of our group who like to go to concerts, and there are other members of our group who don't. There are members of our group who like to sit around a campfire and say nothing, and there are other members of our group who want to sit around a campfire and talk and talk and talk. And I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. Like, we're all different, and we all bring different gifts, and we balance each other out so damn well, and yet we want to tell a story about who our group is and what they are, but that's just a myth. And so I turn over to my wife and I say, I get it. For the first time, I see what I'm doing. I'm manipulating you. I am creating myth stories about our group that are not true. And so as I sat there for about an hour, her and I just talking, I know it was healing to her. It was deeply, it was deep work for me um, to begin to dissect that. and I have not gone back to that mechanism since. And so you're right. like sitting with these things uh, helps us to address them. And the more we revisit like oh, I'm doing that thing again, the more we can distance ourselves from it, we can reduce its impact and hopefully eventually even just get rid of it altogether.
1: And don't you find Bill as as you do that process, you you gain greater connection?
2: Yeah, because now instead of having a story about my wife or a story about me or a story about our group, I've now removed one more layer and I now see the group just a little bit more like it really is.
1: Yeah, it's pretty beautiful, I think. So, Bill, I know that your mom has been struggling. She's she's had an illness and I just want to check in and see how things are going with that. How are you handling things? And
2: Yeah, so for the audience, my mom has cancer. It, it started off as skin cancer. And uh, and I want to preface this. I I highly doubt. I highly doubt. I would I would I know she would be hurt if she listened to this episode and, and heard me talking about it. Um, and so I won't say much. Um, but I would say just for listeners, if you're hearing this, I, I would really hope that nobody in the listenership would go online and, and make a comment about this part of our podcast episode. Let's just keep this kind of here. But as my mom is dealing with cancer and and all that comes with that. It, it's gotten me at various points to be really pissed. like'm I'm, I'm just fucking angry, I'm mad and and as I'm mad, I'm mad what am I mad at? like I, I've deconstructed religion, I've deconstructed uh, in serious ways what God is or isn't. And, and so I don't have anything to be pissed at other than to be pissed at the universe and the universe just does what it does. And so I was sitting at dinner the other night with some friends and and somebody asked that too said how's your mom doing and i said you know it's bullshit it's fucked up this world is is so damn hurtful at times in the way this thing just plays out where where kids die or or young children are sold into the sex trade business or uh you know a parent passes away three months before their wife has their first child. Like there's so much tragedy and trauma on this planet. And, and it, it, like, there's moments where you're like, it's just bullshit and it isn't okay. And it's frustrating. And then my very next thought was, but it's also beautiful. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it ties into what we're just talking about, which is this idea that, um, Planet Earth has had billions and billions of species. And yet, Mikkel, how many species are building condos? Yeah, one. Yeah, dolphins aren't building condos, right? Right. Dolphins are damn smart, and they haven't built a damn thing, have they?
1: Not that I know of.
2: No, no, there's no underwater uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea down there. But it
1: would be really cool if there was. Maybe we yeah, just it haven't would be discovered cool. it yet, Bill.
2: It would be cool. And so it, it gave me this thought, like, as I look out across the universe, Mikkel, how damn lucky are we that this one species, this one species, its vocal cords developed just enough, its consciousness developed just enough, that it creates these things like gossip and myth, and and now it builds things and destroys things, unfortunately. It's miraculous. And so, as I look at the tragedy of what we're dealing with with my mom, uh, at the very moment I'm holding space inside me, pissed and angry, there's also a deep awareness that, man, we were all damn lucky to have what we have and to be who we are and to have even this short moment, however long it lasts, on this rock that's flying through space at thousands and thousands and thousands of miles per hour. Um, how lucky we are to enjoy whatever this experience entails for the short time we do.
1: Yeah, I I think that it's so, like you said, it's it's this beautiful chaos. It's this, it's messy, but it's also at the same time so amazing and so beautiful and so mind-boggling to try and comprehend, like you said, the tragedy, but also the the beauty. And I think for me, the key focus that I've been trying to really latch onto is just be present because this moment may not ever come again and it may be gone tomorrow and I might, you know, I could, I could die tomorrow. So be present with where, where you're at, who you are and all of the beautiful chaos that's around us.
2: Yeah. There's a quote that says you don't deserve anything. And that's true. You don't deserve the bad that comes into your life, but you don't deserve the good that comes into your life either. The universe just happens And we ought to just have gratitude for it.
1: Yeah, I agree. Be appreciative of the journey, of the struggle, which sometimes is hard for me to be appreciative of the struggle, but the struggle has gotten me to where I'm at.
2: Yeah, the struggle is where the growth is. Well, that that should wrap it up, Mikkel. I feel like we covered a ton of ground today. I'm excited. This this was an episode where I sat down and kind of formulated some things that I wanted to kind of talk about. I'm really excited for next week. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts yet on, on kind of the ground we're going to cover next week?
1: Yeah, next week we're going to cover what vulnerability really is, what it looks like, and I'm going to be referencing Brene Brown.
2: Ooh, Bernay is a hero of ours, and I'll be honest—you're making me a little uncomfortable. I'm not sure if how vulnerable you want to get, but we'll,
0: oh, I guess we'll gonna see. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. Be mm-hmm. good. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode for coaching opportunities or extra support visit no-nonsense-spirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director Brittany Hartman